Hello, and thank you all for joining us on the Kansas Canopy podcast. This is season three, episode seven. Today, we are going to be talking about the role of Eastern Red Cedars in Kansas. Controversial topic. Yeah. So today I have with me Ryan Armbrust, who is our Rural Forestry Coordinator. Thank you for being on with me today, Ryan. Happy to be here. Happy to talk about this. Very fun, very simple topic. <laughs> I think you can knock this one out pretty quick. Pretty quickly. Oh yeah, 30 seconds. This is going to be a short episode. Perfect. So you guys just need to tune in for the next 30 seconds. We'll have this totally handled. Yeah. So to start us off, do you just want to tell everybody a little bit about what you do at the Kansas Forest Service? Yeah. So Rural Forestry Coordinator isn't all of that, uh, you know, that's not the most obvious title, right? So, <laughs> so what I end up doing is I supervise, in a sense, our rural district foresters. So we've got a bunch of folks throughout the state who offer a wealth of technical expertise to people who want to do everything from planting windbreaks, which is you know appropriate for this morning's conversation, um, to doing timber stand improvement, which is improving their woodland stand, to planning how they can help protect their stream banks from erosion using forests, um, all kinds of stuff. And so I, I, in a general sense, supervise those those folks, which really means that I do my best to help keep them here and give them the tools they need to do the really good work they can for for Kansans. So today, when we talk about eastern red cedar. I would guess a lot of our listeners are familiar, or perhaps I should say, have some feeling about Eastern Red Cedar. Absolutely. Whether you live in a city or live you know, out in a rural area, you've seen it, you're familiar with it. You probably have some thoughts about it. I don't know a lot of people who are very neutral. Um, you either love it for what it can do or hate it because of the, the threats it represents or because you've spent a whole lot of days cutting them out of pastures or something right. like that. So I, I would guess everyone is probably familiar with it and has some thoughts already. So to kick the discussion off, what is the history of this tree in Kansas or just sort of generally in our, our area? What was it doing before colonization, pre-19-1800s? Yeah, so at some point in the history, you know, I don't remember this and I don't know anybody who does because it's about 10,000 years ago, but we had glaciers here at one point and we didn't have a whole lot of trees under the ice. Uh, you know, there are parts of Kansas that weren't glaciated and there was stuff going on there. But, you know, with the receding of the glaciers, um, with, uh, you know, the, I would say, peopling of this area by indigenous folks, you know, you also had vegetation that came in and sort of had this ebb and flow based on climate, based on, you know, fire, based on human use of fire to manage things like bison and other large animals. Um, you know, you, you had this dynamic vegetation landscape out there. I say dynamic if you take a, you know, thousand year perspective, it's very dynamic. If you take a six month perspective, it's static. Right. So Eastern Red Cedar is the only conifer at this point that's native to Kansas. Um, at one point, there was actually a large spruce forest native to Kansas, but this was tens of thousands of years ago. They're, they're not here anymore. Um, so Eastern Red Cedar was part of that vegetation community that went between, you know, uh, deciduous hardwood forests in the east to short grass prairie in the west. And, and Eastern Red Cedar occupied this space that was largely defined by how people related to it. And where fire allowed it to persist, because I think also in Kansas, we're very familiar with the role of prescribed fire, how important it is for our ecosystems across the state. And that that fire really is going to define where you see it and where you don't, for the most part, you know, pre-settlement, I would say. Absolutely. So before we kind of talk about the the positive role of eastern red cedar, when you're talking about this being its native habitat, how do you feel about people sort of throwing around the word invasive or some of those other terminology in reference to this tree? Yeah. So, you know, words matter. Right. And um, when I use the word invasive, I typically go to sort of that scientific um, 
definition of vases, which implies that it's non-native, it's an alien species, it's not part of that functioning ecosystem, right? And we can define that in a really broad, you know, multiple state range, or we can define that in a really small, you know, niche range of what's native to this hillside, you know, the south side of this hill as opposed to the north side. So in, in a broad sense, I think invasive isn't probably quite the right word for it, but certainly Eastern red cedar is an aggressive, you know, pioneer species. It's going to be a woody encroacher in other systems, in, including woodland systems, by the way, where we, where we really see this showing up and getting a whole lot of visibility, of course, is in our grassland systems where Eastern red cedar can certainly disrupt those systems and just all kinds of bad outcomes there. Um, but we also see this disrupting some of our native um, woody ecosystems, our forests and woodlands and savannas um, that again, in the, in this new dynamic where we don't have fire as a part of that, whether it's a one year or a 10 year return interval on fire, all of a sudden we've created an opportunity for Eastern Red to really get in there and do what it does well, which is take over in the, in the lack of fire to keep it out. So when we're looking fast forward a little bit, when we're looking at today, you know, this is an aggressive species. This is a species that we're seeing disrupt a lot of ecosystems. Why do we have it? Does it have a role in modern day Kansas? It does. It's a super narrow role that we really want to use it for, um, almost like a prescription, right? So um, where we just sort of have this hands-off management style, um, in some cases, I, and I'm sure we'll get some angry letters about this, some cases it's neglect, right? We, we see some people who just don't manage that landscape well. And, and maybe there's some really justifiable reasons for that. They may not be physically able to get out and do as much as they used to. They may be a out-of-state landowner. They, they may just not know, you know, some, sometimes you, you have folks who make what they think is a good management decision and it turns out to not actually be working towards the outcome they want to have. And, and you end up with an unfortunate outcome, which is maybe a whole lot of red cedar on the landscape. Right. So I, I think one of the ways that we got to there um, is, is, well, there's a lot of ways we got to where we're, where we're at. And I, and I think the more we try and be critical of how we got there and understand what we can feasibly do to take steps to get back to something that's functional and stable and beneficial and, and sustainable, we're, we're going to be in a good place there. So when we're looking at some of those positive roles, you know, if I live in eastern Kansas versus western Kansas, north versus south, does that look different as far as my need for eastern red cedar? It sure could. So I, I guess it's worth talking about what good is eastern red cedar, right? Because there's a whole long list of why eastern red cedar is a bad tree, right? Yep. Not something we want to have out there. I mean, frankly, Honestly, I don't like Eastern red cedar. The only red cedars I like are some of those ones that are like 150 years old in cemeteries that have a big old trunk and just this wizened looking, you know, they're cool looking trees when they get that old. There's some individual Eastern red cedars that I like. For the most part, I don't like the species. It's irritating to me, both physically, like when I touch it, but also like spiritually, it irritates me. Um, so why, why should anyone care? What's a good thing about red cedar, right? And, and maybe this will surprise people who say a forester has got to struggle to come up with something good to say <laughs> about red cedars. Um, the only good thing I could say about Eastern red cedar is that it lives. And there are places where we know there are benefits of having a windbreak. And when we don't have anything else that will live for a, an evergreen component of that, um, we say, well, if we want any sort of benefit here, we're going to have to you know, include Eastern red cedar in this. And, and so where I'm going with that is that, you know, we know there's a lot of benefits of, of windbreaks, whether it's a home windbreak, a field windbreak next to, you know, um, agriculture, like, you know, soybean, corn, wheat, 
or whether it's next to, uh, you know, rangeland or pasture land. So it's a livestock windbreak. So why the heck do you plant those there? Um, it's because there's quantifiable benefits to having something that slows down the wind. I know this is going to shock people, right? But occasionally the wind blows in Kansas, whether it's summer or winter. Um, and as you can slow that wind, there's various benefits, either reduced crop stress or reduced stress on, on cattle, increased calving success, um, you know, reduced home energy use. Um, and, and so we need an evergreen component, right? At, at a large scale, do we need Eastern red cedar to do that for us? No, what we need is an evergreen component, but what we found out over the years is that a lot of other stuff that we've tried doesn't work for one reason or another. Um, and I could give a whole lot of examples of those, right? There's pines that have come out by pine wilt. Um, there's uh, other species we've tried that, um, you know, like most spruces, don't really put up with some of our environmental extremes we get here in Kansas. You know, it gets awfully cold and it gets awfully hot here. And sometimes those two things occur on, you know, succeeding days. <laughs> There's been Februarys where it's like 70 and then 25 below. That's really hard on a lot of trees. And over the years, what we found out is despite our best efforts to come up with all kinds of different alternatives, gosh, the only thing that we can recommend to someone with any sort of confidence that's really going to work for them, which is our job, right? We need to make good recommendations for something that's actually going to work, ends up being Eastern Red Cedar, which is a tough spot to put us in. But hey, if we want that benefit, we're going to have to figure out how to use that tree and, and mitigate the potential well, not the potential, mitigate the known drawbacks to having Eastern red cedar in the landscape. So it would be very fair to say that what makes Eastern red cedar so beneficial as a windbreak is also what makes it so challenging <laughs> in our other landscapes. Yes. Tough trees are tough. Being a tough tree is a good thing in a lot of ways, but it also means that it comes sometimes with other consequences of being a tough tree, which means it's going to persist out there in some landscapes we don't necessarily want it in. Now, fortunately, you know, we, we could be like some of our friends in the South who are experiencing some issues with, with junipers, which Eastern Red Cedar is a juniper, right? We, we, we ought to mention that. It's not a true cedar. Um, there are some junipers in the South, in Texas, for instance, that um, are not well controlled by fire. Or if you cut them, they re-sprout. Um, Eastern Red Cedar is fairly well controlled by fire, especially when it's, you know, less than eight feet tall. Um and if you cut it off at the base, it's done, right? You don't have to treat it with herbicide. You don't have to follow up. It's not going to re-sprout from root suckers or anything like that. It's done. So, at, you know, at, at least here in Kansas, we have something that we know how to deal with. Now, the scale of it is certainly imposing, right? We've got hundreds of thousands of acres of this stuff out there that really needs to be addressed. Um, but at least there's, there's some way to deal with it. Um, but it requires management. So to touch a bit more on the benefit, or perhaps I should say the perceived benefit, yeah. there are some wildlife benefits of Eastern red cedar, but I think sometimes those tend to be a bit overblown. What would you say the benefit, if any of there is to Eastern red cedar, and what do you commonly see that people are maybe misunderstanding about how that species can interact with wildlife? Right. So it's great to plant trees or just at a large scale to manage your landscape for the benefit of wildlife, especially non-game wildlife, right? That's wonderful for, you could think of songbirds or pollinators, all kinds of stuff that isn't necessarily, you know, the, the big hunting stuff. Um, you know, it's wonderful to manage your landscape for the benefit of those things. However, I think it's really important to make sure that what you're doing is actually achieving that outcome. And I think there's been this perception, and I'm not sure where its root comes from, but there was a perception that having a bunch of eastern red cedar means you're going to have a bunch of wildlife. You're going to have a bunch of birds. You're going to have a bunch of you know cedar wax wings. You're going to have a whole bunch of deer cover, and it's going to be you know 
better deer or what I've heard sometimes people say is, well, I want more deer, so I'm going to plant more red cedars. And, and this just doesn't hold out, right? We, we don't see that having a dense cedar forest does anything for wildlife. We see that, um, you know, I'm not a wildlife biologist, but I talk to a lot of our wildlife biologist friends, and I don't think a, one of them is going to say that you need a whole lot of eastern red cedar on your land to benefit wildlife. Some cover, some food source, some nesting habitat, sure it can provide that, but it's not the only thing that can provide that, and it can provide that at very low densities as well. So um, we, we don't want to encourage this common perception again that if you have a bunch of red cedar, you're going to get a bunch of deer. Well, you may not, and I would also say I'm not sure that people want more deer, they probably want better deer, right? You, you want bigger deer, you want healthier deer. You don't just want more deer out there. I think we probably have enough deer. Um, I certainly see plenty and, and have to dodge them on the road coming to work in the morning. But I, I think, you know, we have a bunch of people within our agency, within wildlife and parks, within NRCS, within a bunch of partner agencies who are really ready to help landowners. If a landowner comes in and says, I really want to do something great for wildlife on my property. We've got all kinds of great planning advice and, and plans we can make for you. Not a one of them is really going to include go out and plant a bunch of red cedar or allow your land to convert to a dense cedar woodland. That's not really going to achieve what you want to achieve, which is good wildlife habitat. And like you were saying before, that really doesn't mimic what has ever been here historically. No, there there is not an instance I am aware of where you've had a, a dense monoculture of eastern red cedar that is something beneficial, something that existed historically. You know, we're not trying to restore. There's not a static point in history that says this is the ideal, you know, permanent uh, landscape that we're trying to get back to. Right. It's all about how do we achieve something that in this dynamic flow over time is going to be, you know, healthy as, as it matures and decays and regenerates and, and, you know, recycles throughout the vegetation cover on that landscape, how it's going to have a lot of benefits. And some of those benefits need to be, you know, economic agricultural benefits for landowners. Um, that's worth calling out specifically. Um, people need to be able to make a living from their land. Um, that's, that's one way we help sustain the, the stewardship of the land is people who are able to make a living off their land. Um, but also we're trying to make sure that we have a stable system out there. And for the most part, the really good land stewards we have in Kansas are managing for those multiple outcomes, right? They're managing for their, for their family to be able to buy groceries and put gas in the car and everything else and send their kids off to school. Um, but they're also managing, um, you know, for wildlife and maybe for recreation and for beauty and other things. And I, and I think, um, you know, we can achieve that, but none of those things are achieved by allowing Eastern red cedar to take over a landscape. Again, whether that's rangeland, um, which is, is really visible and, and definitely a, a serious um, concern for all of us, um, but also woodlands in Kansas, as we see Eastern red cedar uh, really persistent woodlands, um, which is, is really notable around Tuttle Creek Lake. You can really see it there, but it, it's occurring all over. You know, that's a concern. We're having a system that's being destabilized by the invasion of Eastern red cedar. Absolutely. And I think I would hope perhaps that a lot of landowners would be aware of the downside to eastern red cedar encroachment. But could you explain it to somebody that maybe just thinks, oh, cute little Christmas tree out in the pasture? You know, what are what is the concern when we start to see this encroachment? Obviously, the loss of mm. habitat, but there are some other concerns as well. There is. Yeah. So so one of the first concerns, of course, is loss of diversity, displacing native plants. Um, you know, we're, we're blessed here in Kansas to have a massive area of the remaining tall grass prairie that's left in this hemisphere um, is here in the Flint Hills. 
And I guess I'll have to give a little bit of credit to Oklahoma. So the Flint Hills do extend into Oklahoma. So what, well done on that part. Um, but, you know, not only is it displacing native species, but it's, you know, reducing the available forage for cattle, which use that. And the management of the Flint Hills by cattle and fire is largely what's allowed that incredible ecosystem to persist. The reason we have so much there, and yeah, there's rocks in the soil, but because there's a way for people to get an economic value out of sustaining a really high quality ecosystem out there. And certainly no one wants red cedar to disrupt that. I mean, that's going to disrupt, you know, generations of families making their living off the land, and it's going to disrupt our ability to have that tall grass prairie out there. Um, but outside of just displacing that and reducing cattle forage, which reduces, you know, economic opportunities, you know, fire exists, right? We live in a fire adapted landscape. Not only um, do we need fire out there, but we need to consider the risks uh, when we get those unintended fires, right? Which happen. Uh, brush piles can escape. Someone could have a trailer chain that's dragging, um, you know, someone could be welding fence and have a gust come up and a spark start, all kinds of ways for fires to start. And when you have a landscape um, that's fire adapted, that also means it's flammable, right? And so grass fires have a whole lot of different behavior than fires that have a whole lot of a red cedar component in it, right? So you have more fuel, you have longer spotting distances, you have more extreme fire behavior, they're much hotter. Um, you know, I, I am not a fire expert, but I am a firefighter and I've been on plenty of fires for red cedar and it is much hotter, is much different. And so there's also this threat to, to people and lives and structures and property that comes from allowing Eastern red cedar to really persist out there where all of a sudden the fire isn't, isn't a fire, it becomes a very extreme thing when you have a lot of red cedars. And unfortunately, we've seen that in this state. I've, I've seen that in, in my county. I, I live in Wabunsee County, where fires with red cedar components in it get a little more difficult and complex to manage. But we've seen it in the two largest fires we've ever had in our state, um, in the south central part of the state, where lots of red cedars down there, and those got pretty complex and difficult. And you can read a lot of really good news articles about what came out of that. I won't attempt to re-summarize all that, but you know, this is real. It's not conceptual, you know, allowing Eastern red cedars to really get out there and have a huge role in our landscape changes the way that fires behave and the way that we are at risk from them. So we really have two very major problems with Eastern red cedar, mm -hmm. you know, that displacement of our natural ecosystems, our natural species, and then this very real danger to people and properties. Yeah. How does Eastern red cedar behave? And you touched on this a little bit, but just to hammer at home, how does it behave differently than other native species? If I had an oak woodland versus, you know, an area that had been overtaken by Eastern red cedar and they both caught fire, how's that going to look different? Well, one thing that's different is obviously the architecture of the trees, right? So if you think of a bur oak, which is a species that is largely like a savanna adapted species, right? That's something that typically would grow in open structures around grass. It has thick, corky bark on it. It has an open canopy. Um, you're going to have grass fires that sweep beneath it, and it's going to be insulated from the heat of that fire by that corky bark. It's not going to catch on fire, right? Our oaks aren't going to catch on fire. Our oaks are going to have fire, you know, lick and move beneath them. And eastern red cedar has branches to the ground. It has oily, waxy needles to it. Um, those branches to the ground are often physically touching grasses. So you have a, what's called a ladder fuel at that point where you can have a, a ground fire all of a sudden move into the eastern red cedar. So you have like more fuel, hotter fuel, different sort of fuel arrangement. Um, so it's, it's not just a, 
a forest. It's not just that you've got woody biomass out there on a per acre basis. It's it's what it is, how it's made, how it's arranged. Um, they're they're a lot different. And I would say, um, as you have eastern red cedars sort of persist in those woodland systems too, all of a sudden those oaks actually aren't as well suited to staying um, and and playing well with fire. All of a sudden now those eastern red cedars are throwing a ton of heat way up in the air, and they're going to really damage those those oaks. So now all of a sudden we're going to lose all of those you know fifty to two hundred year old oaks that ought to be persisting there. So things change when you get red cedars and when, when they're thrown into the mix. That's really interesting. So they're not only a hazard within themselves, but can change the way normally a landscape would react well to fire can actually be quite devastating. Absolutely. So when we talk about fire adapted landscape, we're talking about a particular, you know, intensity and return interval of fire, right? We're not just saying that you can put, pour as much fire on that land for as long as you want, and it's fine. It's, it's really adapted to a certain cycle and intensity of, of that fire. Um, but when you we disrupt that with a whole lot more uh, red cedars in there, for instance, all of a sudden what, what would look like a fire adapted species becomes something that's fire prone and, and something that now is very damaged by the presence of fire. So it's obviously a very serious issue. If we roll the clock back to the early 1900s, you know, people were here, certainly not as many people as are here today. Why is this a problem now? What has happened that has caused us to be such a such a threatening issue for our landscape? That's a really important question. I think we've all been asking in the, in the natural resources space, we've all been asking ourselves that question a whole lot because the answer to that question is going to help us understand where we go from here, right? And how we not only fix some of the mistakes we've made, but make sure that we don't make those again and, and know what we can do that's meaningful to, to correct things, right? So um, one thing that we know has been a contributing factor to this, right, is in the Flint Hills, we're very comfortable with prescribed fire not everywhere is comfortable with fire right and that could be due to some cultural things that could be due to some climactic things where you necessarily don't want to put as much fire on the ground because you don't know if it's going to rain in a timely way um there was also some messaging and now that we, we love smoky right we've got a nice little cut out of smoky here at the forest service headquarters but the smoky had a, a, a rather straightforward message for a long time which was aligned with the u.s forest service which was basically just all fires bad and we know that's not the case, right? I mean, damaging, threatening, extreme wildfires. Yeah, those are those are bad, right? But fire itself isn't bad. And so we had this concept that fires need to be suppressed. We don't want fires. We don't want them here. We don't want them there. We don't want them in the woods. We don't want them in the grass. They're just, they're bad news. We need to suppress them all. Well, what happens when you don't consume those things with fire? Eventually they will burn, right? You can either choose to burn them now and choose the conditions that they're going to burn, or maybe they're going to burn down the road. But we kicked that can down the road a long time with a national system of fire suppression. We, we've seen this across the country from following the news and everywhere from California, which gets a lot of news about fires, right? Um, to New Mexico, to Montana, Nebraska, Kansas is not exempt from this, right? So the result of long-term fire suppression is there's going to be a change in that system, right? You've taken an important factor out of that. Something's going to change. And what changes is, you know, fuel buildup. Um, so the, the reason we have a lot of red cedars today is not just that we've suppressed fire, but that's certainly been a major contributing factor, right? Um, I think there's also been, like we alluded to, sort of a, a disconnect. And, and some of this comes on us. I wasn't the one who did it. I wasn't born yet, you know, in the 1930s. Um, 
but there was a maybe just a little bit of a muddling of the message of what red cedars can do for you, right? And where they should be appropriately used and what the benefit is. We alluded to this with the deer conversation, right? If you want good deer, you don't necessarily just want to go and plant a bunch of red cedars everywhere, right? We've, we've made that change. Um, folks who manage public wildlife areas have made that change. They're no longer going out and just planting eight rows of red cedar for three, four miles just because, right? We need a good reason. And the reason isn't just that, well, we heard that they're good for deer, so we're going to plant more. Deer don't generally eat red cedar, right? They don't need them. So there's been some changes in, in what we view them being planted as. And, and certainly, um, you know, you can make a case that the, like the Prairie States Shelter Belt Project that went on to the 30s and 40s, um, you know, certainly increased the seed source that's out there, right? So, so by planting a whole lot more red cedar windbreaks all across the Great Plains, we have increased the seed source. We didn't actually introduce the seed source there, right? It, it's here. It's always been across the Great Plains in draws and gullies and places that, you know, fire didn't typically hit. So we've always had the seed source there, but we did definitely increase it. But what happened with an increase in that seed source was also a difference in management, right? So now all of that seed source, that initial seed source has been multiplied, you know, multiple times over to where all of the stuff that was allowed to persist in the landscape for the last 50 years represents a much, much, much larger seed source than every single one of the trees that anybody actually put in the ground with a spade, right? And so when we talk about seed source contribution, the massive proportion of the seed source contribution to the ongoing problem is from undermanaged landscapes. Um, so like I said, there's not one reason. I got a whole lot of reasons that it ended up there, but we're trying to take steps to address each one of those. And I think that's a really good spot for us to stop today. We have a lot more to talk about. Do not think this is where we're ending this topic. Uh, lots more, more to say on Eastern Red Cedar. Please join us next month. Specifically, we're going to be talking about how to manage Eastern Red Cedar in the landscape. And what are we as an agency doing? We're doing a lot of different things and a lot of different program areas trying to address what we recognize is a really important problem. So thank you, Ryan, so much for being on with me today. Please make sure you tune in next month as we wrap up this very important topic of Eastern Red Cedar. Make sure to subscribe and thank you all for joining us.